I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It can be a long and winding road that takes someone from confirmed atheist to believer. It's a profound shift, and some people who've made it say they went from thinking life was one big cosmic joke to feeling maybe there's some kind of purpose behind it all. Meet June Park, who's been traveling that road for a long time. Park is now a hospital chaplain at a level one trauma center in Florida. He does not fit the stereotype of a chaplain for a lot of reasons. Not just the fact that he's the religion guy on call after so many years of being an atheist. There's also that black belt in Taekwondo and the fact he uses Star Trek The Next Generation as a guide for being present with the people he encounters. And so as you can imagine, as I go from room to room, I'm entering different planets. Each patient has their own atmosphere, culture, their own symbols and languages, what is important to them. And it is on me to quickly acclimate to my patient's world, to their planet, uh, almost as a space explorer, entering in, not to disrupt or disturb, but to be open to everything this patient is going through. June Park does have his own way of doing things at Tampa General. He once prescribed a burger and fries for a patient in distress when no other approach came even close to calming the guy down. I was walking down the hall and I noticed this gentleman. He was yelling down the hall and saying all sorts of violent and obscene things. And then I asked that question. I said, hey, hey, I said, hey, what do you need right now? His mood flipped. He kind of told me this story about how he had been in prison before and he felt like he was in prison again. And it's not the fact that, you know, uh, the food was bad, but that the food was being brought to him and it just felt like he was, you know, locked up. Either he suggested or I suggested the idea of hamburgers. That was it. It was, you know, validation, de-escalation. It was humanizing. That was a day June Park won't be forgetting anytime soon, and it left him with a really good question. Not just, what do you need right now, which he still uses, but what might be the unmet need crying out for attention here? I believe there is always more to the story. When I see a patient who may be labeled as non-compliant or verbally aggressive, physically aggressive, these labels exist for a reason. And at the same time, when I'm able to sit down with a patient and they start sharing in an aggressive way, but as they talk more, there's fear, there's shame, there's guilt, there's unmet needs. There's always more to the story. An unconventional chaplain coming up. This is Tapestry. I'm Mary Hines. Sometimes people shy away from him. They're thinking, oh no, this guy is here to convert me. Or they'll tell him right to his face, 
The last thing I need right now is religion. Do me a favor, don't pray for me. June Park tries to meet all of it with respect, but if the moment feels right, he will offer whatever comfort he can at Tampa General Hospital, where he works as an interfaith chaplain. June Park is my guest. Hello to you. Hi, Mary. How are you? Oh, well, I'm fine. But, you know, you spend all your days tending to everyone else, so I want to ask, how are you? Well, today I am doing wonderful. For one, I'm here chatting with you. I love to get to chat about my work. And I had my therapy session yesterday, so I'm feeling well in tune and uh, grounded this afternoon. Oh, that's a that's a good combination of states to be in. I like the sound of this. You've said you're as much a therapist as anything else when you're at that bedside. How how do you understand your role at the hospital? What are you called to do? Sure, yeah. I think the thing that I've said before is that I'm sort of a cross between a priest and a therapist or a therapist. Of course, with uh, all love and respect to therapists who do incredible work, I think I fit as a chaplain in the intersection between faith and mental health. And so I guess a clinical, technical definition of a chaplain would be a comforting, non-anxious, non-judgmental presence. And so whereas pastors may preach and impart information, pastors preach whereas chaplains come in as a presence. The hospital that I'm at, which is a thousand plus bed hospital, level one trauma center, we're called to every death every code blue. We're called to every trauma, and level one traumas encompass gunshot wounds, car accidents, fire, fall, stabbings, very high acuity cases. And uh, I make the phone call for the next of kin, and if our patient is awake and alert, I'm there for crisis support and assistance. And so we cover a wide range of activities, and very often uh, religion doesn't even come up. Uh, I'm there to hear my patient whether they want to vent or grieve in the way that they're grieving or to tell their story, if they need to contact their family, if they just need someone there to sit, that's what I'm there for. I I really like the way you express this, that the central part of what you're doing is to be a presence and to be present. Is is that something you can be taught or, or are you only good at this once you've actually done the job for a long time? Yeah, you know, I wish I could say that I had this down on day one, that I came in a fully formed chaplain or presence. But I can tell you with a lot of confidence, and I'm sure my educators could as well, uh, that it was quite a learning curve. You know, I think we are each instinctually and inherently wanting to uh, be compassionate presences. You know, we, we each want to be able to be good listeners. But that can be a, quite a difficult thing for many different reasons. I think for one, Uh, We come in with agendas, assumptions. We come in wanting to be heard. And some of those things are good things, but I think it is very difficult to make room and space for the person in front of us, especially if they're in distress, in crisis, and in grief. And so at least in the research and the education that I've done, what I've found and what I've learned is that very often learning empathy and compassion is almost like learning a second language, Hmm. that it can be like learning uh, a musical instrument. And that really what it takes is repeated occurrences and the active choice to actually slow down, pause, and take the perspective of the other person. And with enough practice and with enough active choices of trying to actively listen to this other person, uh, our bodies, minds, and hearts have a deep capacity to expand our listening skill, to expand our listening uh, muscle. 
And so I want to say that I, I was called to the field that I'm in. I love the work that I get to do. And I think when I came in, I probably maybe had decent listening skills. I'm hoping that I came in um, to the right place. But I can say over time, over the last eight years that I've been a chaplain, certainly I've been challenged and stretched to really, really listen without judgment or agenda, but to simply be with. How do you navigate the moments when there's resistance to you, when either the family or the patient is thinking, this guy represents organized religion, capital R religion, and that's the last thing I can face right now. How, how do you move through that kind of resistance when it occurs? Yes, first of all, can I say that that resistance completely makes sense. Um, when we think in terms of organized religion and historically what the church or religion in general has represented, it has not always been kind or friendly or compassionate. And many of my patients, just like many people all over the world, have experienced some sort of uh, religious trauma, spiritual abuse. So it completely makes sense if my patient sees me and they are activated by the label on my badge that says chaplain. It makes sense to me that they wouldn't want to talk to someone who's a religious figure because it may remind them of their mortality or they may start thinking about things like life and death that they do not want to think about. And so I always respect my patient's autonomy and dignity. If they do not want me in the room for any reason, absolutely, I will take my leave. And there are times when I may stay an extra beat or two and try to gently and kindly inform my patient uh, that I'm not necessarily there for religious purposes, that I will see anyone regardless of background, tradition, upbringing, and perspective, and that I am there simply for them, uh, not to proselytize, not to uh, preach at them, but to simply be with. So there are many different ways with gesture, uh, not verbally necessarily all the time, that I can indicate to this patient that I'm a safe person, that the religious label is not all that I am. And so, of course, again, if they find themselves struggling with or very resistant to any type of religious figure, I will leave. But I always try to take a moment to let that person know that I'm not here uh, for that, but here for them. And I would say, honestly, probably four out of five times that I've taken that extra second to be with a patient, to inform them why I'm there, they have opened up and they have engaged and connected and communicated. And it is on me to offer that first impression. I think I heard or read a study that a first impression can be made in one sixteenth of a second. Mm. And that a fully formed opinion uh, can be formed in six seconds. And so as you can imagine, as I go from room to room, I'm entering different planets. Each patient has their own atmosphere, culture, their own symbols and languages, what is important to them. And it is on me to quickly acclimate to my patient's world, to their planet, uh, almost as a space explorer, entering in, not to disrupt or disturb, but to be open to everything this patient is going through, religion or no religion. And uh, oftentimes, I'm very lucky that I had great teachers and educators that gave me the capacity to enter my patient's planet with safety and with care. I love this metaphor that you are 
as a space explorer moving into a new planet with every room. But a space explorer generally has an awful lot more than six seconds to get things right. What are the tools at your disposal to make sure that this first encounter on this new planet is as friendly and as non-threatening as it can be. Are you all smiles when you walk in? Do you have a very grave countenance? What What's at your disposal to say hello to this new planet in a way that works for the patient? Yeah. You know, when you said, uh, am I all smiles when I walk in? If I was all smiles in all the rooms that I walked in, I'm sure it would be very off-putting for many of my patients. <laughs> and so my hope is for congruency. Is my mood and posture congruent with what the patient is going through? And it doesn't mean that if my patient is crying, that I'm also crying, though I have certainly wept with patients before. But if my patient is happy, I'm going to enter into the room and match their jubilance and their joy. If my patient is deeply in grief, then I will, of course, match their tempo and their pace and to respect that space of their somberness. And so wherever I'm going, I want to make sure that I am matching where they are. Speaking of Space Explorer, Star Trek The Next Generation is my favorite iteration of Star Trek. And mine too. It's mine too. Yeah, Picard being my captain. Yeah. He really has this fine balance of respecting the prime directive, in which when he enters a planet, uh, he is not there to speed up or slow down the technological process or the civilization's evolution. However, if he needs to intervene in the sense that something is causing them harm, then he will intervene in a way that respects this planet's culture and their natural course of evolution. And so I often think of that when I enter rooms, the prime directive I'm not there to disturb, disrupt. I don't want to be non-congruent. I want to be respectful of where my patient is. And at the same time, I am bringing all of myself and any gifting that I may have and the presence that I can bring to that person. And so it can be a very fine, delicate dance of connection. Uh, I'm not sure that I always get it right. But even little things like if I enter a patient's room and I immediately stand over their bed like this, uh, that can be very threatening to some patients. In fact, I don't think most patients would like someone standing over their bed. Mm. I may stand a little off to the side and angle myself just a bit so that I'm not looming over them. With their permission, I may sit in a chair next to them, uh, but not so close uh, that I'm invading their personal boundaries. And that's also very cultural. There are some who like me sitting closer, some who want me to sit further away. As you and I are talking... If we were to be able to talk face-to-face, -face, I would look at you and have eye contact. And I just want you to take notice of this. As I am talking with you, if I even for half a second looked away, you notice a slight disruption. I looked distracted. Mm. And that's what I mean by non-anxious presence. That if I hear, for example, the food cart rolling behind me, I don't just turn around real fast and then come back. That I'm present with you 100%. That I'm not looking at a clock, I'm not looking at my phone, that I'm here and I'm listening, and that I even bring back things that you may have said earlier in the conversation. These are all ways in which six seconds, or maybe across 30 minutes, if the patient is very generous, that I can make that connection. 
You're with Tapestry. Thanks for inviting us in. Whether it's on podcast, on the CBC Listen app, or on CBC Radio 1. If you're listening online at cbc.ca slash tapestry, hello to you. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is June Park, an interfaith hospital chaplain at a level one trauma center in Tampa, Florida. I've shared this story before, and of course, as always, I'll alter details uh, to preserve privacy, but I have had patients where they may have certain wishes, but the room that's full of family members all have different ideas about what they believe their loved one wants. And so the patient, if they're not awake and alert, if they're intubated, they may have put that in writing. If they are awake and alert, they may be able to communicate what their wishes are, and yet family may want to override, or out of fear or anxiety, they may want to keep their loved one on certain invasive treatments more than the patient wants to go through. And so there was one specific case in which a patient, uh, she was no longer able to communicate. There were four uh, daughters. They each had to decide as a consensus, what they wanted for their mom. Mm -hmm. Do we continue all interventions, resuscitations, or do we go to what's called CMO comfort measures only, which means we're going to remove certain interventions so that she may die peacefully. So I could see that three of the daughters were in agreement that she should be able to go peacefully. We can go ahead and do CMO. Let's remove everything. One of the daughters did not say anything, but I could see in her face and her eyes and her body language. She wanted more. She didn't want to just quote unquote, give up. That's what Mm. she thought that she was doing. Mm. So at the end of our family meeting with the palliative team there, I took a moment to pause and I asked that fourth child, adult child, hey, I noticed uh, in your face that there are gears turning, that this seems like a very hard decision. Is there any questions you had for us, anything you wanted to say? And she got to say everything that she needed to, to tell her three siblings, I don't want to do this. And they got to talking and there was some conflict. But in the end, she made peace with the fact that there was nothing else that could be done. And the decision didn't change but at least this daughter got to share what she wanted for her mother in a safe way to express things, to express herself. And so did that change anything? Maybe not necessarily. Could it have changed anything? Not necessarily. It would have been a vote still of three to one, but making room and space for this child to be able to express what she wanted for her mom in some ways was able to bring some measure of peace to that family. And so I, as a chaplain, being attuned to that, being aware of that, I try to make those moments where I can go in slow motion and say, I know that the machines, the numbers, all of these things are important, but between, between the machines and the medicine, can I find this sacred space of having a dose of humanity? I was surprised to learn that you were an atheist for a good part of your life. And I'm I'm always so interested in this kind of story, people who 
come to belief as adults. How did it happen for you? Yeah, hopefully I don't make a short story too long. <laughs> you know, I want to say that it was some overnight epiphany where I just woke up and I found God or something like that. But, you know, I grew up an atheist because, for one, my home was an eclectic mix of different religions or none. My dad saying that he was Christian, but not always acting so. My mom is saying that she was uh, she didn't believe in anything and or believed in all of it and said it could all be true. And my grandmother, uh, she was a Shintoist, uh, which I believe is a form of Buddhism. And so I grew up in a very diverse household of religions. I grew up deciding that I was an atheist early on because my parents told me early on that uh, I came about uh, not planned, that I was quote-unquote an accident. And at least in my young frame of mind, I thought this meant that everything was a cosmic accident, um, that I just happened to be here, and that my life was some kind of interruption to the timeline. Therefore, everything is haphazard, chaotic, we're just a bunch of senseless molecules colliding. And I believed this for a long time, and I don't think I'm speaking for every atheist, certainly out of love and respect for all my friends who are, but that is what I believed in, a complete sense of nihilism and purposelessness. And it wasn't really actually until my 20s that I started diligently attending this very small church. I went more as a social gathering, but I started kind of sort of paying attention to the sermons, started to get to know the people there, and it was a small Korean-American church, so I was very happy to find people who looked like me. But as I started listening and leaning into this community, I started finding this supernatural love from the pastor, from the messages, from the people. And so it wasn't any defense of faith or academic persuasion or argument that brought me towards faith. It was really extrapolating backwards the supernatural love of this church that brought me to understand maybe this has a source and that there is something bigger than all of us binding us and that there is something fixed and inalterable at the heart of the universe that is a divine love and it exists, and that even if there were accidents that happen, and even if I was some sort of cosmic interruption, still I was loved by something that was completely divine and what I thought was perfect, and still I could be given purpose. And so I think then began the slow and steady shift towards faith. And, you know, since then, to be truthful, being in the hospital the last eight years working there, I have lost faith several times and have reverted back to no faith. And I've come back each time, but changed. And I think it's because of the amount and the degree to which I saw suffering that brought me back to the idea that everything is accidental and haphazard. I've always come back because I do want a divine love to hold me and to believe that even through all the suffering that I've seen, that we are all still loved, valued, and dignified. I'm Mary Hines. This is Tapestry. My guest is hospital chaplain and unofficial therapist, June Park. mentioned June being Korean-American, um, and, and I, I'd like to quote you here, this doesn't make me torn between two worlds. Um, instead, there are many worlds in me, 
Tell me, tell me what exists there in those many worlds within you. Yes. So, you know, I grew up in Florida, and often I was the only Asian American in my circles growing up in school. I found it difficult to be Korean American here in the States in the 80s and 90s and experienced a lot of racism, bullying, abuse, and uh, physical assault, uh, racial slurs uh, for being me. I couldn't hide my race in my face. And I developed this internalized narrative that, honestly, I did not want to be Korean. I did not want to be this. And sometimes I prayed to a God I didn't believe in that I wanted to be white. And it wasn't actually until I would say I went into my chaplaincy program where my supervisor, Waleska, she asked me, what parts of you did you have to hide in order to survive. And then she asked me, how can we bring those parts alive now? Mm. And she asked about my Asian American or my Korean identity. And I told her about how much I hated being Korean and my shame around that. And then I went back to this uh, memory and I only discovered this memory later. When I was about four, my first day of preschool, I couldn't speak English at the time, and my preschool teacher put me in the corner, uh, facing the corner in a chair, and I stayed there all day. Mm. And it was probably two, three years later, my parents had decided to speak only English at home, and I think because of trauma and assimilation, I lost most of my Korean language. And I'm sure it was that early event that caused me to hide. And so my internalized hatred for my own identity, a lot of that was a trauma response. And a lot of that was a survival mechanism. So in speaking with Waleska, she was able to unpack for me and help me to find a lot of healing in embracing my Koreanness, my heritage, my story. And what I found is that when I speak with, uh, for example, my cousins or you know my aunts and uncles, they have their own Korean identity but I, as a Korean American, have a different identity even than my family overseas because I grew up here. And so I take from my roots and I take from my upbringing here. And Korean Americanness is its own identity. And so I don't feel torn in half anymore. In fact, I feel fuller. I have many worlds inside me. The skin can fit so much. And so I know that there's a sense in which children of immigrants do feel like they're torn between worlds, between homes. And what I've come to find is that I want to let all of the good of my heritage and my upbringing in. Well, your baby girl speaks some Korean, doesn't she? You're, you're raising her with both languages? Yes. Uh, you know, my parents, my, my daughter's grandparents, uh, they speak Korean to her. I do worry about that because um, we do speak mostly English at home. Thankfully, my parents are speaking Korean to her. But even little phrases, some things that can't be translated into English, we're teaching her those things because Korean just has this incredible range uh, describing emotions and describing our humanity. So we are trying to teach her that. Quick story, she was sad the other day. I think this was a couple of weeks ago. She was sitting against the wall. And uh, I went to her and I asked her about it. And uh, she said, I... I'm sad because I can't hold all my dolls. So I said, mm. and I said, yes, that is sad, you know, validating how she was mm. feeling. 
And then I said, hey, how about hanashik? And hanashik in uh, Korean means one by one. <laughs> and she jumped up and she, knew, she knows what that means. <laughs> so she said, hanashik. And then she began <laughs> hugging her dolls one by one. One by one. One at a time, hanashik. Mm -hmm. There was a day at the hospital. This is a story I read about a while ago, and it has really stayed with me. You, you simply asked a, a so-called difficult patient, what do you need right now? And everything changed. Can you tell me about that day? What led to that moment? Sure, yes. Out of respect for privacy, so I'll switch a couple of details. But I was walking down the hall, not even to my own patient. But I was walking down the hall, and I noticed this gentleman. He was yelling down the hall and saying all sorts of violent and obscene things. Sometimes I think healthcare workers, we see something like that, and there's a sort of an inside joke that goes around where uh, if it's not your patient, you say five magic words. You say, let me get your nurse. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like saying uh, when I used to work in the restaurant, we would say, let me get your waiter, you know, right, right, right. Um, who is not me. So I could have just kept walking. You know, I could have said, let me get your nurse. But he was yelling and then he yelled at me. This is going to sound like a brag, and I, I promise I'm not trying to make it sound this way, but having grown up with martial arts and all of that, I felt fine and safe to just approach him, and I got quite close to him. And then I asked that question. I said, hey, hey. I said, hey, what do you need right now? And he seemed almost stunned, because I don't know if anyone had come close to him to even ask him anything. And of course, out of respect to all the healthcare workers, because, you know, nurses, physicians, everybody's doing something, everybody's stretched, and I'm sure mm -hmm. if they had time, they would have tended to him. But I, when I asked him that question, his mood flipped. And it was almost like his anger, I saw, was a secondary emotion that was coping for and covering something else. It was pain. And as I talked to him, he kind of told me this story about how he had been in prison before and he felt like he was in prison again. And it's not the fact that, you know, uh, the food was bad, but that the food was being brought to him and it, it just felt like he was, you know, locked up. So then uh, either he suggested or I suggested the idea of hamburgers. And so I managed to get him some hamburger and fries. Of course, I checked with the nurse, you know, any dietary restrictions. When I asked him dietary restrictions, he said, no, you know, no, I'm the opposite of dietary restrictions. <laughs> so I got him the hamburger and fries and that was it. It was, you know, validation, de-escalation. It was humanizing. And uh, I guess uh, as a follow-up to that, word must have gotten around because uh, the next day I went to see a patient who called specifically for me. And my patient says, hey, are you the guy that gives hamburgers? <laughs> And I said, well, that's technically not what we do, but I can try to help. So I guess word got around. Beverly, the prime directive is not just a set of rules. It is a philosophy and a very correct one. History has proved again and again that whenever mankind interferes with a less developed civilization, no matter how well-intentioned that interference may be, the results are invariably disastrous. It's hard to be philosophical when faced with suffering. Believe me, Beverly, there was only one decision. I just hope it was the right one. And we may never know. Resume. 
A scene from Star Trek The Next Generation, the best Trek, I would humbly suggest, and the one June Park turns to for inspiration in his work as a hospital chaplain. You heard a scene from Season 1, Episode 22. You're with Tapestry on podcast online and on CBC Radio 1. I'm Mary Hines. I have another quote of yours here that something I found really moving. Um, Three years ago, I almost started a podcast. I went to therapy instead, the best investment I ever made. I I happen to think a lot of podcast makers should go to therapy instead, but that's a different conversation. What did therapy do for you? You know, yeah. And out of all love and respect for fellow podcasters, I never did start a podcast. I went, I did, it's true. I did go to therapy instead. And, you know, I've had uh, intermittent therapy throughout the years. And what I mean by that is I, I didn't go consistently. Like I might go for a couple months or something like that or in a crisis situation. Uh, but back in, uh, it would be 2020 now, my wife and I just had our child. And my wife had a a severe case of uh, postpartum depression. And this was in July of 2020. So this was the height of and the mystery of COVID and the pandemic and everything. Mm. Couldn't have any people come over to help us either. At the time, I knew that with my work, with what my wife was going through, with being a new dad, I definitely needed to enter into regular therapy. And it's something I'm even embarrassed to say, I wish I had gone into sooner because I knew that with the childhood abuse that I had experienced, I really needed it. I went to a trauma therapist, a trauma specialist who did EMDR. This is, this is, is this the eye movement desensitization? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's new, but the science around it is still a mystery. It's still a question mark, uh, but it works. And for me, I'm all about if it works, it works. You know, if it's a hamburger, if it's eye movement, if it works, it works. So when uh, I I went, I realized there was so much trauma in my chest and so much in my body, just down in my marrow. And I needed to work out a lot of my trauma responses from the abuse, from the racism, from all the things that I was seeing in the pandemic, from all the hospital work. And then with my wife's PPD, she was almost completely debilitated. So I became almost a sole caretaker for a while. But therapy gave me a place, a safe person to be able to share everything that was hard and scary and fearful and difficult in my life that was happening in the present and that had happened in the past. And so a lot of it was very physiological work. Um, Stuff that seemed like, I'm not sure why I'm doing this, but I trust it, so I'm going to do it like the eye movement. And then a lot of it was the talk therapy, going through a lot of my cognitive thoughts about why do I believe this, and what does this thought say, and where did that come from? And then a lot of it was about confronting my past and how that had sealed certain narratives in me because of the injuries that I received. And so I, I realized I'm very lucky that I get to be able to have that resource. In fact, I got trauma therapy for free because of something called VOCA, the Victims of Crime Act. And uh, because of, since I was physically abused since I was a child, I was able to get that for free. So of course, a very sad reason that I got that for free. And I'm also so glad Florida is one of the states that offer that grant. And I was able to do that. And I've been in that now for a few years. My 
wife most especially has noted the change in me, the way that I'm able to self-regulate in a crisis situation, the way that I'm able to interact with her in conflict. Before, I wanted to resolve everything right now. I'm one of those who, we got to talk about everything, even if it's six hours. I can't sleep until this is done. <laughs> and she's more like, can we, I need time. I can, can, can you know, yeah. Yeah, 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 you know, it's either a conflict, complete engagement or complete avoidance. And I was very engaged. And maybe that's the chaplain part of me or just the part of me that I need to have everything in a bow tie because if I don't, then it's going to be bad. But I was able to regulate myself to say, okay, I'll give you the space that you need now. I was able to call my own body to be able to be grounded and centered, to not be so scared if my wife needed to disengage for a minute because there was a lot of fear for me there. And so therapy gave me a lot of that centeredness. And I, I'm so glad that I took that plunge. It's not easy. It's a lot of investment, a lot of time. And therapy itself can be very painful. But uh, I pray for, wish for, hope for all those resources for everyone. I remember interviewing someone years ago, June. This was actually a, a hockey player, a professional hockey player. And he talked about his mom had died and he was so frustrated and so angry that the world around him felt as though it was just business as usual. And that felt profoundly wrong. And it sounds as though you've encountered the same disconnect with, with some of the families you counsel at the hospital. How do you help them manage the fact, the fact that can feel unbearable that the world keeps spinning when they think, why isn't everything stopping? Because my world has just stopped. What, what do you do with that as a chaplain? Yeah, you know, part of grieving I have seen is that there can be an anger, even a rage at my loved one has died, my world has stopped, and yet the world keeps spinning without them and without me. How can I move on in a world without them? And I have seen that anger and it completely makes sense. To me, that is a reasonable and justified anger because it seems like work is calling, they want me to come back right away. Mm. Uh, it seems like people want me b back to baseline. You can be sad, but you got to have a certain measure of time. And then after that, a lot of time is over. Let's get back into the, into the grind, into the gears of institution, into, you know, being yourself again. You know, even in every job description with the work manual and all that stuff, you know, there's going to be a space that says, these are the number of days you get to have for bereavement. You know, right. it can be two days, it can be three. You know, I've seen it most maybe a week. And, you know, it can only be certain family members, your closest next of kin, you know, but if it's like a great grandmother, then no. And so I think there is a particular demand in the world that requires you to be back at tip top productive shape uh, and for the sadness to pass. And if the sadness goes on too long, then you are labeled with uh, prolonged grief disorder. And, you know, the wonderful DSM-5, which has many great uses, you know, I, I, I majored in psych, and so uh, it's still a field I very much love. But, you know, the new diagnosis is that on day 366, you have a disorder. Hmm. And if you're under 18, if it's half that time, you have a disorder. So I totally get the anger and the rage around that. And I wish there was an easy answer for this, Mary. But what I can say is, I absolutely believe collectively, socially, relationally, we do need to make room for people who are completely livid, shut down, 
or have cognitive fog or become numb throughout grief and cannot just come back easily. There are some who, when they grieve, they find it more helpful to have productivity in their lives, to get their hands on something, to make something. Every time we go to a death, there's a, there's a paper that we ask to sign. It's a release form. But not everybody has to sign it, especially if they're not ready then. But some families want to sign something because they need to do something with their hands. Mm. There are people like that that need to go back uh, into the stream of things that they were doing, into some kind of activity. But I think the main thing is, is preparation. And what I mean by that is, if I can talk with a family of those who have lost their loved one, to let them know, hey, there are going to be people and demands and places that will tell you that you need to be back to baseline, back to productivity, and to be prepared for that. And you will find yourself getting angry. So that anger, use it for advocacy, to advocate for yourself. You need time. You need space. You need to be in places where people can safely hold you. And does that mean forever? I don't know. But it, it does mean that people need that almost encouragement to be able to push for themselves, to be able to say, no, I'm mad, and there's nothing you can say or do to alleviate that anger. The world is spinning without me. I can't freeze it, and I wish that I could. I wish I could freeze that very last hour I was with my loved one, and I can't. And I think we need to validate that and not push for, let's go back to the assembly line and baseline. You're with Tapestry on CBC Radio 1 and online at cbc.ca. I'm Mary Hines. My guest is June Park, a hospital chaplain at a level one trauma center in Tampa, Florida. June is also a former atheist and a man who keeps coming back to his belief in the divine, in something beyond ourselves, no matter how many times he loses that faith. There was a hospice worker on this show uh, not so long ago, and her story is fascinating. She worked in the ER as a nurse and was a a confirmed atheist because of what she'd seen in the ER. She goes to work in a hospice and becomes an absolute believer in something divine, something beyond what we can sense and see and hear because of the experience of people at the end of their lives seeming to transition into something else. Have you had moments like that as a chaplain? Yeah, you know, I would say at least on two levels. I think one, I I recently learned the name for this called visioning, where I guess people who are at the end of life, they're still awake and alert. They're able to uh, see something that's next for them. Patient hears uh, laughter in the next room. There wasn't laughter or one patient saying, I hear a banquet next door. You know, I want to go over there. Mm -hmm. Or someone saying, you know, I see my grandmother and her grandmother's been gone. People visioning what would come next for them. And uh, whether that's true or not, you know, I am curious about the fact that it does happen to a lot of people. You know, is it tapping into something? Are they hallucinating? Maybe it's tapping into something. I don't know. But on another level, when I see the way that families care for each other, the way that they can love each other, even through horrific tragedy, 
that supernatural love again is enough to melt even the coldest of hearts. And I, I don't want to equate a cold heart to atheism. That's hopefully not what I'm doing. But I'm seeing something very divine to me and supernatural pass between families in the midst of chaos. I'm seeing humanity and divinity in these rooms. And in the midst of such horror, in separation and in loss, to see that sort of grace and love enter a room is enough for me to believe in something bigger than us holding us. And that's the kind of theology that I aim for and that I want, is not something we have to hold up, but something that holds us. And it reminds me of uh, that verse in scripture, I think it's 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, his love lives in us and it's made complete in us. You know, it's really that divine love that I've seen that gets me to believe. And that hospice nurse, maybe she was referring to some other things, but I think every healthcare worker, eventually we see things that are not explainable by natural means, or at least things that we feel are undeniably true in the moment. And whether that's a patient who is talking about some afterlife, or being in a room where we see love being shared that looks impossible, and yet it's a love across death, for me, that I think is enough to believe there must be God in these rooms. The world is in a place of such, you use the word chaos, such intense pain and suffering at the moment. Where do you find moments of light and joy and awe? You know, I think two quick answers that I can say for sure. One is that I love the people that I work with. Chaplains are considered in our hospital to be first responders. My team, they are incredible. And we are allowed moments to be able to pause and process with each other. You know, in chaplains, we make the best chaplains. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad that I get to sit with my chaplain colleagues, my coworkers, my friends, and to be able to process with them. And we're able to laugh loudly together and to just fully give in to ourselves and be ourselves with each other. And I get to do some awesome things as a chaplain too. Like when I get to baptize babies, that's like my favorite thing. Is it really? I, I love it. You know, I really, really do. Just to see the joy and the hope of this baby's future. Certainly, I have also baptized my share of infants who have died. And that's, of course, um, devastating. And even then, to bring some measure of closure or peace for this family. And that's what I do. And I think people may be surprised that sometimes in a room, there is this moment when the bereaved are talking about their loved one who's just died. I will always ask this question, what was she like or what were they like? And the family gets to talking and processing about their loved one who's just died right around the deathbed. And as they're talking, of course, deep sorrow, lots of tears and um, remembering the good person that they were, remembering even hard things. But there is a moment once in a while where they will remember something funny and this entire room will burst out into laughter. And I've seen this now dozens of times. You know, the way that their loved one entered a room or told a joke or the way that they were so hyper excited about something you know, or do you remember this time that we went out on this road trip and then he did this and, you know, she did that. There's always this moment where alongside grief 
there can coexist joy and celebration. And so you have the sorrow over one who is gone, but also the celebration over their life. And I think in those moments, I find lightness of being when this room can celebrate this life that this person has lived. You've been doing this chaplaincy work for, I think you said, eight years now. Is there, is there one lesson you've taken away, the, the thing that feels most profound to you or the gift it's given you? Yes, absolutely. I would say, and this is a simple, maybe basic thing that I'm saying, but one that I have always found to be true. I believe there is always more to the story. When I see a patient who may be labeled as non-compliant or verbally aggressive, physically aggressive, these labels exist for a reason. And at the same time, when I'm able to sit down with a patient and they start sharing in an aggressive way, but as they talk more, there's fear, there's shame, there's guilt, there's unmet needs. There's always more to the story. You know, even in the global chaos that we're seeing now, for me, it seems like there's more to the story than we know. And so my hope is that I am always offering as much as I can in the compassionate ways that I can to humanize my patient, to recognize that this 0.1% of a trauma response, their anger, their shouting, or what, however their expression is, it's just a small percentage of who this person is and not to hold that against them. And so even in the ways that we grieve, whether it's loud crying or numbness, whether I've seen rolling on the floor, dancing, clapping, and singing, or I've seen no tears and just sitting in a corner, no movement, for me not to judge these extreme reactions because there's more to the story. This is their way of coping for someone who throws chairs or to someone who can't get out of their chair. There's always more to that story. And so for me, how can I offer a grace and humanity and as generous of a room as possible for everything that my patient and their loved ones, their family, their friends are going through? And that goes for healthcare workers too who are stressed and stretched. There may be more to that story. And so when I consider everything that happens, whether suffering in the hospital room or suffering overseas, how can I bring human humanity there with a generous explanation and to recognize that each of us, as I enter a room, I'm entering different planets, and that person is also an entire planet unto themselves. They're a whole world, and there's always more. June Park, um, I've loved talking to you. Thank you. Mary, thank you so much. Appreciate you. June Park spoke to you from Tampa, Florida, where he's part of the chaplaincy team at Tampa General Hospital. That's it for us this week. This episode was produced by McKenna Hadley-Burke and Armand Egbali. Technical production by Laura Antonelli and Gabby Hagorilas. The senior producer is Rosie Fernandez. I'm Mary Hines. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.